You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Awesome. Well, hello and welcome again to GCC. Uh, If you don't know me or I don't know you, my name is Brad and I'm one of the pastors here. And I have the privilege of preaching this morning. Uh, We have been going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called Live and looking at Jesus' teaching, the longest recorded sermon teaching that we have of Jesus, uh, and explaining at where he explains what life in the kingdom of God looks like and how we live uh, in the kingdom of God. This week, we're taking a, a step outside of that. As Ian mentioned, it's Palm Sunday. So for uh, throughout history, the church has, has celebrated Holy Week, uh, and the church calendar is Holy Week, which begins with Palm Sunday here today, and then goes through till Easter. And it's, it's to remember the last week of Jesus's life uh, before his crucifixion and resurrection. Palm Sunday today uh, is the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey as Jesus, or as <laughs> Jesus, Ian, you're not Jesus. Ian mentioned earlier, but yeah, all right. Just a minute in and we already got heresy. All right. Um, This is going to go well. Um, uh, So Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. So we're going to be looking at that passage this morning. It's in the book of Matthew, chapter 21. So if you have a Bible, uh, would you please open it to Matthew, chapter 21. If you need one and don't have one with you, we have some on the Connect table. Uh, Those are free for you to take if you want to snag one of those. Matthew, chapter 21. As you're you're flipping there, I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for uh, your people, and for this day that we get to gather uh, together as your people to remember um, what it is you came to do, uh, to remember the salvation that you've provided through the gospel, um, to remember what that now means for us as people who are members of your kingdom, living in light of the salvation we have through Christ. God, I pray that uh, whatever we come, we're coming in with this morning, God, you would quiet our hearts and minds and um, help us to be receptive to your word. God, I pray that you would help me to preach your word faithfully, that it, the gospel would be clear and compelling, um, and that whether this is the first time hearing the gospel for some of us or maybe the hundredth time, uh, we would be struck with awe and wonder uh, over what you've done for us, the humility that you, Jesus, showed in coming to uh, earth to live die and rise from the grave so that we could be free from sin and experience life with you for eternity. But that is the message that we hear this morning. That's the message that we take with us, and it's the one that we proclaim in our city as well. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, how many of you have ever wanted to make an entrance or, you, or you've wanted to enter into a place or a situation and make a good first impression? Probably all of us in some regard. First impressions matter. First impressions are important. And so sometimes we think about how we can make an entrance. Uh, When I was in college, uh, I was a part of a college group that would have, uh, periodically we would have, we'd throw parties and there was a Christmas party and me and my roommates, we were all seniors. And so this was going to be our last Christmas party with our college group. And we were, we wanted to uh, make an entrance. We wanted to come up with something that would uh, give, leave some, leave uh, our classmates something to remember us by. Uh, And we wanted it to be kind of funny as well. So I think we have a picture, Mark, of what we came up with. Rick showed an embarrassing picture of himself last week. So I feel like I got to, okay. 
This is, this is our outfit. So we went with white pants, a white turtleneck, and if that wasn't classy enough, we topped it off with Christmas sweaters that are gift wrapped. And the, <laughs> the tag, this is so embarrassing, the tag on the sweaters says to women uh, because we were <laughs> gifts to women. Um, the, the like recommended attire for this party was either formal or festive. So you could dress up in like, you know, gowns and suits and be more formal or festive. And as we walked up to the door, one of us turned around and said, guys, we're the only ones that went festive. And literally everyone in this party was like suit and tie dresses. And we looked like this. So uh, we made an entrance. It was hilarious. And I think we're the only five people that remember it. But um, Anyway, every Christmas, this text or this picture comes up in our, our group message, and we remember remember the entrance we made. So first impressions are important. You can get rid of that, please, Mark. Okay, yeah. First impressions are important. Making an entrance is important. And when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he's making an entrance. Most of Jesus' ministry up to this point has been outside of Jerusalem in the region of Galilee, which is up north, kind of in the more rural part of Israel. And he's slowly been gathering followers and people have been, disciples have been coming to hear his teaching, to receive healing, to, to see what this Jesus person is all about. But he's, he moves slowly, ever so slowly towards Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem where there's going to be kind of this epic showdown. It's where the religious leaders of the day are, and it's where there's, there's going to be some kind of conflict. Jesus' ministry is going to come to a head in one way or another in Jerusalem. And so Jesus arrives at Jerusalem, he makes his entrance, and that's what we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 1, is this entrance that Jesus makes. And when we see how Jesus came into Jerusalem, we're going to be able to identify things that are true about how he comes to us, how he comes into the world, and how he comes to each one of us personally. So the goal this morning is to see how Jesus comes to us, and then in return, how we come to him, and then we're going to try to wrap it all up in a word uh, that we can take with us this week as we go. So if you're in Matthew chapter 21, follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, their cloak, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So how does Jesus come to us? How does he come into Jerusalem? First, he comes on a donkey. Jesus comes to us on a donkey. The crowd that was gathering and following Jesus had expectations of what he was going to be and what he was going to do. The expectations of the Messiah from the Old Testament were that he was going to, the Messiah was going to be this conquering king 
that, that had God's power and hand of approval and anointing on him. And he was going to restore the nation of Israel to, to its, its former power and its former presence in, uh, in the land. Those were the expectations of the Messiah. And at the time, when Jesus is living and doing his ministry, the oppressive ruler that is, that is uh, ruling over Israel is the nation of Rome. Rome was the world power at the time, and it ruled the land with regional governors that oversaw different provinces. And life under Roman rule for the Israelites, for the Jews, was less than pleasant. And so they were hoping and expecting for the Messiah to overthrow Rome. So as Jesus is, is entering into Jerusalem, the expectation, if Jesus really is the Messiah, is that he's going to show up with power, he's going to show up with strength, He's going to show up with military force, and he's going to overthrow Rome. But this is not how Jesus shows up. If Jesus were to show up to do that, he would show up on some kind of war horse or a chariot that's, that's really decorated, and he would show up with an army of soldiers to defeat Rome. But Jesus rides in on a donkey, not a war horse, but a humble beast. And he doesn't come with an army. He comes with a band of misfits and outcasts. Fishermen and farmers, people who are lame and blind and injured and in need of healing. So, you see, Jesus does not bend to our worldly definitions of power and strength. What Jesus rides into Jerusalem to do is the most powerful thing that has ever been done in human history. But it's not done through political prowess. It's not done through military might. It's not done through violent conflict or domination or force. It's done by Jesus humbly and willingly sacrificing his life on a cross. And this whole process begins with him riding in on a donkey. So Jesus comes to us on a donkey. Second, Jesus comes to us in the flesh. Uh, in verses 4 and 5, Matthew quote actually two prophecies. He says the, the voice of the prophet or, or the words of the prophet. He says a singular prophet, but he's combining two different prophecies. The first one is from Isaiah 62. And Isaiah 62 talks about God extending his right hand and bringing salvation for his people. So that's the first one. The second one is Zechariah 9. And in Zechariah 9, the Messianic king arrives and brings salvation for God's people. So what Matthew's doing here is very clever in saying that there's a singular prophet and combining the two, he's combining the identities of the Messiah. He's combining the identities of the Savior. God is the Messianic king, and the Messianic king is God. In John 1, we learn that Jesus was with God in the very beginning, that all things were made through him and for him and by him, but that God in Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became flesh and lived among us. In Christ, the unknowable God becomes known. In Christ, the transcendent God becomes imminent. He becomes near and close. In Christ, the creator becomes part of the creation. Jesus comes to us on our terms, on our home court, living and breathing and eating and sleeping and drinking as we are, anguished and troubled and hurt and, and happy and joyous and glad just as we are. He comes to us in the flesh. Every other religion is going to tell you how to get to God. There's a formula that will help you achieve some sort of divinity. How do you get to God? Christianity says that God has come to us. God has come to you, and he's come to you in the person of Christ. So Jesus comes to us in the flesh. 
Third, Jesus comes to us on a mission. The crowds are shouting Hosanna, and the word Hosanna means save us or save us now. And then the, the quotation, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, is from Psalm 118, which is a psalm about salvation. It's a cry to God to save us. Jesus doesn't come primarily to teach us how to be good people. Jesus doesn't come primarily to overthrow corrupt governments. He doesn't come to help us become the best versions of ourselves we can be. Jesus comes to save us. It is salvation that is the mission of God revealed in Christ Jesus. The Jewish people wanted the Messiah to overthrow the oppressive ruler of Rome. And Jesus does come to overthrow an oppressive ruler, but that oppressive ruler isn't Rome, it's sin. Sin rules us all. Sin is an oppressive ruler. And we have to understand sin as more than just things we do or don't do. Sin is a state of existence that we are in outside of Christ. Our rebellion against God is not a mistake we make here or there. Our rebellion against God is a state of existence for humanity. And this rebellion against God separates us from him, cuts us off from the source of life, and leaves us dead in our trespasses and sins. Sin's, sin rules us oppressively, and ultimately sin will kill us if we do not, have, do not have a way out of that rule, out from under that rule. Palm Sunday is day one of Holy Week, and this next Friday, Good Friday, is the day that Jesus is crucified. And it's on the cross that Jesus deals with sin. Jesus takes our place, becoming sin, taking the penalty for sin, dying in our place so that all those who trust in him can be free. It is on the cross that, that God's power is displayed and revealed as Jesus takes sin head on, lets it kill, destroy, crush him so that he can defeat it once and for all. And then a few days later on Sunday, Jesus rises from the dead. We'll celebrate that next week in Easter. And in rising, he offers to all who would come to him salvation and freedom from this oppressive ruler of sin. So how does Jesus come to us on a donkey in the flesh and on a mission? Now, how do we come to him? How do we come to Christ for salvation? We're going to keep reading in Matthew chapter 21, starting verse 12, where we left off. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw, how the wonderful, saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So how do we come to Jesus first? We come broken. When Jesus enters the temple, he, the first thing he does is he drives out the money changers. These were people that were profiting off of the poor people that were coming to try to worship God. The, the temple was a place of prayer. It was a place where people were to come and worship. And in order to have sacrifices that they could bring to the altar, they had to pay for them. And then you have these people here, the, the haves, taking advantage of the have-nots and exchanging money unfairly and selling things at, at, at unfair prices just to make a buck off of the people who are coming to the temple to worship. This, for understandable reasons, makes Jesus 
angry. So he drives them out. He clears the temple and he, he, he makes the way for people who are actually there to worship to come worship. And who are the first people that come? Broken people, the blind and the lame. It's the broken that come to Jesus for healing. And so the same for us, we come to Jesus broken. We come to Jesus unable to see clearly and unable to walk rightly. Sin in our life and sin in the world causes brokenness, and it's a brokenness that we cannot fix or heal on our own. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he says that the, the, sick are, the, the healthy are in no need of a physician. It's the sick that need healing, and he came for the sick. Jesus came for those who are in need of healing. He came for not the healthy, but the broken. Uh, one author uses an illustration. It would be like uh, a, 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 a child that, is, that goes into the operating room to perform open-heart heart surgery on themselves. We're broken and we need surgery. And when we try to fix it on our own outside of Christ, we just do more damage. So imagine a child going into the operating room with a scalpel to perform open heart surgery on itself, they're going to do a lot more damage than they are good. And that's like us trying to fix the brokenness caused by sin in our life on our own. We need a surgeon. We need a physician. We need a professional. What we need is Jesus. Second, we come to Jesus helpless. After the lame and, or the blind and lame come to Jesus, uh, children are there. And the children are crying out, Hosanna, the same phrase from earlier, save us. Children are helpless, unable to protect themselves. Uh, my son Riggs is a year and a month, almost two months old, and it was a couple months ago that he started learning how to walk. And um, at first, it's like cute and fun, but also no concept of danger, right? Just full speed ahead towards a step and a drop off. The amount of times this kid has hit his head, I'm worried about brain damage in the future, but then again, I think all kids hit their heads a lot, so I don't know, they must have tough skulls. Um, if on his own, unaware of, of the danger around him, he would walk right into it. He, he would walk into the street. He would touch a stove. He would walk off of a step downstairs. He, he would just head right towards danger, unaware of what's around him. He's helpless, helpless to protect himself. He needs my wife and I to come in and scoop him up when he's heading for a step or to, like yesterday, get rid of the liquid ant poison bait that he's going towards. Um, before he eats it, because that wouldn't be good. Um, Google it. It's actually not as bad as you think. But um, we had a, a, a scare. Um, children are helpless, and we come to Jesus like children, uh, unable to protect ourselves from danger. We've talked about sin already. Sin breaks us. It causes brokenness in our life, and ultimately sin will kill us. Sin is dangerous. And there's a lot of ways that we see sin as being obviously dangerous, but I think more times than not, sin is subtly dangerous. Slowly and quietly uh, destroying us from the inside out as it takes over our hearts and lives. We're unaware, and even if we were, we'd have no power in stopping it. We're helpless to protect ourselves. And there's no amount of philanthropy or education or self-help books, personality tests, counseling, or good vibes that can protect us from the danger of sin. Only Jesus can. And lastly, we come to Jesus needy. Jesus quotes Psalm 8, where it says, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies comes praise. 
If helplessness is the inability to protect ourselves, neediness is the inability to provide for ourselves. Think about what comes out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies. There's like 20 babies in our church family um, that are around this stage. A year ago, that's where Riggs was. And babies cannot provide for themselves. They, they cannot feed themselves. They cannot burp themselves. They can't change themselves. They can't move from one place to another. And when they have some sort of physical, biological need that they need help, that they need provision for, what do they do? They tell you with their voice. They cry. They scream. They yell. What, comes, what, what other noise comes out of the mouth of a, a, an infant and a nursing baby but the, the cry for help, the cry for provision? Infants are in need of provision. Infants are in need of the provision of their parents to provide for them all that they need for life. And Jesus says that this is praise. So think about that. Praise then, according to Jesus, is a vocal cry of dependence and recognition of our need. When we're praising God through song, when we're praising God, we're saying to him out loud, I need you. I need you for life. I need you to sustain me. I need you to give me what what I need to live. And so when we come to Jesus, we come to him needy, unable to provide for ourselves. We come broken, we come helpless, and we come needy. If we could put a word on all of this, it's a word that Ian mentioned earlier, we would say humility. The way Jesus comes to us in our world and the way that we in turn come to him is defined by humility. Now, humility is not a popular character trait in our world. The culture around us would not say that humility is going to win the day for you, nor is it the natural state of our sinful hearts. So in our world, humility is often seen as weakness, whereas pride is viewed as strength. Because heaven forbid you ever actually admit that you are broken, helpless, and needy. You would never want to admit that you are in need of some kind of help because what you hear, the message you hear around you says you have enough within you. You're strong enough. You're good enough. You can be independent enough. You can chase your dreams and achieve your goals, and you can do it all on your own under your own, your own strength. You're not weak. You're not broken. You're not helpless. You, you're not in need. You can do it yourself. Personal freedom, autonomy, and independence are all celebrated in our world, while humble dependence on others is often mocked and sometimes even viewed as pathetic. In our world, power is gained and then displayed through coercion, force, and domination over others. Power is elevating yourself above others, and that's celebrated in our world. Humility is placing yourself below others, and that's scoffed at. It's not just externally that we're pushed to to not be humble people, but also internally. Our hearts are prone to pride. Our hearts long for autonomy. We long to sit on the throne that only God belongs on. And we expect everyone else around us to bow down to our needs and our wants and serve us where we're going. Now, this pride is not always obvious. And I think more times than not, it shows up, and especially in the church, through insecurity. Rick talked a lot about self-righteousness last week, and I, and I think there's some self-righteousness wrapped up in this as well. But when we're insecure, at the root of that is pride. Uh, for example, I get insecure when I preach. Here we are. Um, 
But here's the thing. I'm not afraid of, I'm not afraid of misteaching God's word or saying heresy. I already did that. Um, what I'm most afraid about, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I have the most fear about is what you all will think of me. When I stand up here to hopefully bring glory to God and help you all view him, in the back of my mind, what I'm thinking about is what do they think of me? Now that, we can label that insecurity. But at the root of it, at the heart, is pride. Because what I'm thinking about is, is me. And what I'm hoping you all are thinking about is me. Not God, not one another, but me. And that's pride. And, 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 and our, our, it's it's preaching and a million other things for me, it might be something different for you where you are wondering constantly, well, what are they going to think of, of me? Because you're at the center of your world and you expect everyone else to view you in that way. And so we become insecure, we become self-righteous, and our hearts reject humility. Now, the gospel cuts at the root of both the cultural claims of our world and the natural bend of our heart. Because it's in the gospel that we actually see real power. And it's in the gospel that we see our real need. Real power is the God of the universe becoming man, part of his creation, to sit on a donkey and ride headfirst into what he knows is going to be his death with the mission of saving people from their sin. Real power is Jesus being arrested Accused, beaten, mocked, spit on, and nailed to a cross. Real power is a bloody and beaten Savior hanging on a criminal's cross, breathing his last breath. When the world looks at that image, it sees foolishness. But this image is the power of God. Because this image, this act, is the only thing that can set captives free and make dead people live. There is no other power in heaven or on earth that can save the world from sin. And this power is not through coercion or force or domination. It's not through Jesus stomping on the weak. It's by Jesus becoming weak through humble sacrifice and service. That's how the power of God is on full display. Now, when we look at this, when we look at the the, the fullest display of actual real power, from the most powerful thing in the universe, the one who created it, giving up his life, then we all of a sudden realize how needy we are. Because no amount of personal freedom or autonomy or independence, that's not going to be enough. I don't have it in me and you don't have it in you. And so we need a savior. We need something external to save us from our brokenness, to save us from our pride, and to give us eternal life. And so we come to Jesus in humility. We humble ourselves before the foot of the cross where the creator is hanging on and we come broken, helpless, and needy. Now, humility doesn't stop just as we come to Jesus. We're also sent back into the world as followers of Christ to be humble. Uh, Just before Matthew 21, before Jesus rides into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 20, we should have it up on the screen there. I'm going to read just a few verses. This is Jesus talking with a couple of the disciples and their mother about authority and power in the kingdom of God. He says this, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority 
over them. So the rulers of the world, the Gentiles, they lord their power over one another. Over one another, they're exercising authority over one another, and they're they're they're. It's all about power. Verse twenty-six: It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for me for many. Life in in the kingdom of the world, lord your power over one another and exercise authority and dominion over one another. Life in the kingdom of God, be each other's servants and slaves. Just as Jesus, the ruler and king of that kingdom, came to serve and not to be served. Humility is not just how we come to Jesus and our entrance into the kingdom of God. It describes and defines what life looks like in the kingdom of God. The life of the believer in Jesus should be defined by humble service and sacrifice, just as Jesus humbly served and sacrificed for us. Philippians 2, uh, verses 3 through 11 say this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You notice how countercultural this passage is? How often are we told to pursue our selfish ambitions? How many days do we wake up and the natural inclination of our heart is, I'm going to pursue my selfish ambitions today? What you want, what I want, is all that matters in my life, no matter the cost, even if and especially when that cost might be other people. In our world, people are either a roadblock, hindering us from our full potential, and so they should be discarded or removed, or they're servants of ours, paving the way for our ambitions and dreams and goals, making things possible for us. Either way... We're seeing people as objects that either need to be discarded or utilized rather than people that we serve and sacrifice for. The world and our hearts say life is all about me. The gospel says your life isn't about you. Your life is about actually laying it down to elevate and lift others up. And as as foolish and countercultural as this seems, I'm convinced that this kind of humility The humility that we see in Christ is really attractive in our world. That actually this kind of humility is like a beacon of light in the dark fog of our world that shines through and says, hey, here's actually what it looks like to live. And I think people will find this attractive and be drawn to it because they're exhausted in their pursuit of power according to the world's definition of it. And so my my hope Uh, My challenge, the application for this week is for all of us to consider the humility of Jesus as he comes to us. To consider the humility of us coming to him as broken, helpless, and needy people. But then also to consider the humility we walk in as members of his kingdom. 
This week, how can you lay aside your selfish ambitions? How can you look to the interests of others? How can you think of yourself less and others more? Now, the good news of the gospel is this. Look back at Philippians 2, verse 5. It says, have this mind, so this mind of humility, where we're thinking of others more than ourselves, or considering the interests of others uh, as greater and more significant than the interests of ourselves. This mind, this mind of humility, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, that mind is already yours. If you're in Christ, God already views you as perfectly humble, perfectly selfless. The humility of Christ is applied to you, just as his righteousness, holiness, purity is applied to you in Christ. Now, that, that doesn't negate the command, have this mind of humility, but it embeds the command in your identity as a, as a child of God. And so as Christians, we have a responsibility to walk humbly and live in humility, but that responsibility comes with it, freedom. Freedom because there's no amount of pride or selfishness that can separate you from the love of God or decrease his affection for you. And freedom because there's no amount of humility or self-sacrifice you can do that will increase his love for you or earn your way into the kingdom. You come broken, helpless, and needy to the foot of the cross. Receive the love of God freely through Christ. And then we continue to walk in that same freedom. So let us have this mind, this mind of Christ, think in this way and live out this kind of humility because it's already ours in Christ. As a child of God, a son or a daughter of God, your identity is firmly rooted and secure in him. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you as insecure or prideful, or arrogant. He doesn't see you as abusing your power or position. He sees the humility of Christ in you. And because that is true, walk in humility. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us what true humility looks like, also for showing us what true power looks like. Uh, In our our sinful hearts and sinful world, we grab at power um, so aggressively because we want to be something, we want to be someone, we want to have position. God, you you became a man, you, you humbled yourself, Jesus, to become flesh, not just to walk and live as a human, but ultimately to die, to die a sacrificial death in our place so that we could be free, so that we could have salvation. Help us now to praise you, to vocally <laughs> admit our dependence and need for you through our words and the songs we sing. Help us to walk in humility. In Jesus' name, amen.